look at this passage um, briefly. We will have a short time of Q&A, questions and answers. So if you uh, think of something or something comes to mind that you'd like to pepper me with, I'm happy to address any questions you might have. Uh, so you can jot them down and think about those. But could we pause and pray together, ask for God's help. God, we pray for your blessing upon this time. We know that you long to open our ears, that we might hear your voice through these words. And so we pray that you would do that. We want to hear you. Uh, We want our lives to be impacted by your word of truth. Um, So give us uh, an open disposition. And I pray that you would give us rich, personal ways of applying uh, these things that we're learning to real life. Uh, to our real lives. Uh, So make it relevant. Make it powerful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, uh, think of someone you consider to be a great leader, who or what qualifications uh, most quickly, most easily come to mind? Think of a great leader. We have certain pictures of leadership in our mind, don't we? We carry those things around in our heads, our hearts, assumptions, qualities that we admire, things that we look for in a person, people that we want to follow. Maybe it's a coach who gives that inspiring locker room speech. Maybe it's the quick decision maker who never, ever second guesses herself. Maybe it's the community leader who takes charge in a time of crisis, like when a hurricane passes through. Or perhaps it's the CEO, the executive, who maybe might occasionally intimidate some of her employees, but at least she's improving the bottom line. As we start this process as a church, we talked about it last week, of raising up ordained elders at our new congregation here at Grace Meridian Hill. It is so important to notice for us collectively and individually to notice how the Bible presents a vision for leadership that, yes, in some ways is similar to our common ideas of leadership and what you find in the world around us, but yet in many ways is also very different from leadership that we see around us. Already last week, looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, we saw that an elder or an overseer in a church isn't someone that just manages tasks or programs or just gets things done, but rather an elder is someone who loves people, counsels people, cares for people. You see, an elder is a shepherd. An elder isn't a dictator pushing people around, but rather an elder is a servant, someone that's eager to devote themselves, their energy, their time, their heart, their life to the service, the benefit of other people, even at great cost to themselves. We saw that an elder doesn't lead with pretense, an air of arrogance, pulling rank, keeping a distance from the people, but rather an elder is willing to show his weakness. 
And the elder is able to say to the church, I need the grace of God more than any of you. Living a life of transparency, of repentance, an elder needs to be in the community a repenter in chief and a celebrator of the grace of God in chief. That one's a little more clumsy. And all of this is because leadership in the church, eldership in the church, we were told, is modeled after the person of Jesus. Elders are shepherds, but we were reminded that Jesus is the chief shepherd, the shepherd of all shepherds. Even elders themselves are sheep, led by Jesus, fed by Jesus, protected by Jesus. And Jesus was the shepherd, the leader, who exercised his authority. How? By laying it all down. By taking the low place. The exalted one who became nothing. Who came not to be served, but to serve and to die. That's the model. And that's the mystery, too. Of the power to serve and to lead like Jesus did. But here's the question. So then, who should become an elder? What are the qualifications? What are the qualifications? And this is what we're going to look at today. We're looking at two passages where the Apostle Paul, upon departing from churches that he helped start up, is now writing a letter to Titus and Timothy, leaders, elders themselves in these different communities, and he's giving them instructions on who to look for, who to raise up as leaders, as elders in the church. This is going to help us as we start to go through this process of identifying and discerning who God might be calling as elders here in this church. But let me say it's also helpful for every single one of us just in learning more about what leadership in general entails. It applies to all kinds of leadership, doesn't it? I want to invite you to be reflecting about this more broadly in your lives as well. So what are some of these qualifications and what we find in these two passages is that potential elders have at least three things. Calling, character, and competence. Let's look at each of those successively. Calling, character, and competence. First of all, calling. To be an elder in the church, a person needs to want to do it. Sounds simple enough, right? 1 Timothy 3.1 Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And this word aspires appears in the New Testament only in a positive sense. We are well acquainted with unhealthy forms of aspiration, power grabbing, lusting in an arrogant sort of way for a status or a title. This is not what the apostle is talking about here. This is the best sense of aspiration, a desire to serve, a true desire to lead, being eager to care for people, to be in people's lives. It is important, friends, For an elder to feel what you might call an inward calling. To feel inwardly called by God as evidenced by a true passion and an eagerness to do this sort of work. But it's also important 
for people to be what you might call outwardly called, not just inwardly desiring it, but also outwardly called to be a leader. Notice in this passage, in both these passages, that there are other people involved in discerning the calling of elders. In the first passage, Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, Paul says, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. So Titus, the leader, existing leader in the church, was involved in this process and in, implied throughout both passages is the involvement of the entire church community. Paul is actually publicly listing off these qualifications for eldership, for leadership. Why? So that everyone knows what to look for. I've seen this person repent. Yes, he's walked with me in the gospel. He has loved me well. So that qualified elders might be publicly and communally recognized and affirmed together. You see, when it comes to talking about calling, isn't it true, whether you are a person of professing faith or you just use this language of calling more generally, we tend to equate calling simply with personal desire, don't we? My individual desire. I'm called to be an artist because I really want to be an artist. And again, look, Paul says that's important. It's an essential ingredient ingredient to our understanding of calling. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. Calling is never simply individual. It's communal. Other people helping to bring in some objectivity. Yes, you are fit for this kind of task. Yes, you are good. No, actually, you're kind of weak in these ways. Helping to evaluate, helping to give perspective on your gifts and the need for you to work in that area. The best proof that I know of this principle is American Idol. Right, those nomination, I mean, the audition sort of rounds early on in this reality competition. People utterly, completely convinced that they are called to be the next pop star. If you were to ask every single one of them coming through with their, well, let's be kind, you know, so they're not always so great. And yet they're utterly convinced that they're the greatest thing ever to stand behind a microphone, right? The principle at work here is sometimes it's not entirely their fault. Who around them hasn't been in their ear? Who has not been loving them enough to tell them the truth, to beg them not to go on national television and make an embarrassment of themselves? You see, it's not just about inward call, it's outward call and exterior, external evaluation and support and feedback that's given by the community of faith. And that is why in this process of raising up elders, we have a very rigorous process that we plan to put in place. Rigorous, but not unfair and not unreasonable. Hopefully helpful and fruitful. Inviting members of our church to nominate candidates that fit some of these qualifications and seem to be gifted for this role. Having the candidates go through a a process of writing out a questionnaire, of thinking and praying through and assessing honestly their gifts, 
of having them go through training and a series of exams. It's not just going to a person and say, so what do you think? You like this work? You want to do it? It's actually going through a process together. This is what the Apostle Paul is inviting us to do. Please pray for this process. And this is what it means to discern whether a person is called. So even in your own work or in your own areas of leadership, do you have that kind of communal feedback? Other people in your lives that are helping to shape your sense of what God might be leading you to do or to be? Or are you just making it a solo activity, solo enterprise? Calling can never be discerned in a vacuum. And most certainly, this passage tells us, in discerning whether people are called to be elders calling. Secondly, character. Character. The apostle Paul says both to Titus and to Timothy, this is what's going to make it or break it. This is the most important qualification for a leadership. Here's your priority. When you look out into the congregation and you're looking for potential elders, I want you to look at this more than anything else. And what is it? It's not giftedness. Surprise. It's not knowledge. It's not even past experience. Not those things individually. The first priority, Paul tells us, if we look through what he actually lists out, is character. A person's character. This is just so different from our normal evaluation of leaders and the world's priorities in leadership, where you so often hear people say, look, as long as the job gets done, I don't care how they do it, and I don't also care about how they live their lives behind closed doors. And this priority of character just doesn't compute with us, does it? Because we are all people that are so obsessed with gifts, with competence, with abilities. I mean, we tend to believe that what's hindering my progress in life or what's holding me back from that next step in my work or in my studies or in my relationships is my lack of Ability, which is exactly why we envy other people's gifts so much, isn't it? Because we believe that's just the secret, that's the key, that's what I don't have. If only I had more of it, he has it, she has it, I don't. If only I could have it, God is unfair, I hate God, and you walk away, and that's how it happens. Right? When was the last time, friends, that you said to yourself, what I most need to be effective in my home life with my family or my roommates, or what I most need to be effective in my workplace is more patience. What I most need to succeed and be more fruitful in my job from nine to five throughout the week is the ability to handle criticism a little bit better. When was the last time you said that to yourself? We don't think that way. Paul leads us to think that way about all of ourselves, but especially as we look for elders. That it's more than gifts and abilities or knowledge, but what an elder most needs is character that's shaped by a rich experience of the gospel of grace. Can I just go through some of the things and touch on, highlight some of the character attributes that Paul says are necessary ingredients for called elders? 
He says, first of all, look out for humility. Humility. In Titus 1.7, he says, elders need to be not overbearing. This word is actually referring to the sort of arrogance that makes people willful and stubborn. A person that always thinks that they're right, always has to get their way. A person who goes along with a decision, maybe, but continues in their head to say to themselves that this is just totally wrong and I really knew the right way that we should have gone. A person who's unable to work with others always has to lead. Rather, the grace of God makes us into someone more willing, someone more giving, someone more humble, someone more teachable. An elder is one that has to have the ability to learn and the desire to learn from every single person in the community. Really believing what God says when He tells us that every member of the church has invested in them the very presence of God the Holy Spirit. So every one of us has something to benefit from all of us, and elders need to lead the charge in that, valuing every person and everything that comes out of their mouths, including people who are younger in faith and in age. A person who's able to and wants to work together in teams with other elders. You notice in verse 3 of the Titus passage, the reference to appointing elders in the plural. Did you know that God never intended for churches to be led by solo individuals, but rather always meant there to be teams of leaders together? That's why I've been praying and aching for this day that we would have a team. People that would complement each other. People that would lean on each other. People that would weep together. Leaders that would know that they're not omni-competent. They don't have all the gifts that are out there. That they need each other. And that they need the whole community together. A humble leader is what an elder needs to be. Secondly, the quality of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Titus 1.6 and 1 Timothy 3.2 Talk about a person who is faithful to his wife. Or literally, a one-woman man. A one-woman man. And of course, Paul isn't simply talking about sexual wholeness and purity, although that's certainly important. But it's the question of whether or not the candidate's wife, if he is married, feels loved and cherished by her husband. So not just minimally is he sticking around and not cheating on her, but does he embrace her? Does she feel prized? Feel more prized than anyone else and anything else, including his work and even including ministry, that she feels like she is his priority. Yes, you see, I think what... Paul is putting his finger on here is the way that an elder needs to be able to or know how to persevere with people loyally and faithfully. Not use people for his own pleasure and benefit. Not bail out on relationships when they get tough or tiring. That an elder needs to be able to love flawed people over a long period of time. Be able to give his heart to people who know their worst flaws. And one of the best tests of this 
of those qualities is how one relates to his spouse. And for an unmarried candidate, how you relate to close friends and roommates and family members who know you well and know your flaws well. Faithful people. Thirdly, people of self-control. Another marker, self-control. Titus 1.8, Timothy 3.2, Paul uses three similar words. Self-control, disciplined, temperate. This isn't just a description of someone who lives according to a really regimented schedule or goes to the gym a lot or never asks for a second helping of dessert. It's not what he's talking about, self-control. In the Bible, self-control is always a form of love and maturity. Mature love. I mean, when you look at a child, and yes, they are still developing and growing, what are marks of their immaturity? Well, they just blurt things out in an unedited sort of way. They kind of demand their first desire. They express all their emotions. They do whatever they want unchecked. When you see it in an adult, it's a sign of immaturity, isn't it? What is maturity? Isn't it a person who's able to resist giving in to all their self-centered desires? A person who knows how to fight against that for the good of other people. A person who has enough love to restrain their emotions or their opinions. Someone that's not just always reacting to people and reacting to situations. To lead well, you have to be able to respond well. A person that has self-control which is really just mature love. A person of hospitality. Paul mentions this too. Titus 1.8, 1 Timothy 3.2. He must be hospitable. Someone that's inclined to care for people, not in the abstract, but with their stuff, with their time, with their energy, with their conversation. Opening up your home and your heart. Sharing your stuff and your life. A little bit of a spirit of mikasa sukasa, right? Hospitality. And the word literally here, you might know in the New Testament, literally means the love of strangers. You see, because in ancient times, especially in the Jewish world, there weren't hotels, but rather travelers that were passing through a certain town or village would ask to stay in regular people's homes and you would just put them up for a night and give them a good meal and have conversation with them. That's the idea of love of strangers and hospitality. So here Paul has in mind, I think, this idea of being hospitable, meaning being willing to be inconvenienced by others. It means reaching out to people that you don't know. Elders who love welcoming strangers, not just to church, but into their lives. People that are willing to step out of their social comfort zones. Love that picture. This expectation that the leaders of the church would always be pushing out and pushing out and pushing out and then drawing in and drawing in and drawing in and not just institutionally, but personally into their lives, into their hearts. Next, I'm losing count. I don't know what number this is. A healthy relationship to alcohol and to money. Titus 1.7, Timothy 3.3, not given to drunkenness, not pursuing dishonest gain, not a lover of money. The Bible acknowledges 
It does both alcohol and money as good gifts from God. That might be a new idea for you. Those things were made by God and they were made good, but it also acknowledges that they are powerful gifts, very powerful gifts, which if we're not careful, we can easily start to treat like a God in our lives. Like when we start to look to alcohol to be our source of comfort or a source of freedom and liberation or a source of happiness or looking to money to be our source of security or power or status when God promises to be all these things in perfection for us and he offers himself to us. You see, the problem here isn't having money or having a glass of wine. The problem is loving these things too much, needing them. So the question for potential elders is, do you know how to find comfort and joy in God rather than being in the habit of self-medicating? Do you know how to be content with what God has already given you materially? Or are you always looking for more and better? Do you feel entitled to those dreams, to those lusts? Next, gentleness. Maybe not a word that we use often. Gentleness. Titus 1.7. Not quick-tempered. Not violent. 1 Timothy 3.3. 3, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Paul here is talking about different forms of anger. Plenty of examples of leaders who get things done by yelling at people, pushing people around. It includes people that always tend to pick fights. Everywhere they go, they seem to be embroiled in some controversy, some debate, some argument. An elder can't be someone who's always arguing with people, even if it's about theology or someone that loves debating people as sport. Sometimes Christian leaders think that's a mark of leadership. And Paul says it is not. And anger, be reminded, can often show up in ways that are more subtle than just loud outbursts. One form of anger is defensiveness. That you may not go on the offensive you may not chew someone out, but maybe you're always on the counterattack. Maybe you're always got a comeback in your back pocket, ready to throw it back at them. Or another sign of anger is complaining about people all the time. An elder can't be a person that quietly grumbles about the flock all the time. It'll become a cancer in his heart, in the heart of the people whom he serves. You may not be outwardly violent, but you may be in your heart. Have you considered that? An elder, the scripture tells us, needs to be gentle. Giving people the benefit of the doubt. Able to receive others' anger. And yes, there is anger in leadership, right? Having to bear some of that from time to time. Sometimes justly, sometimes unjustly being able to receive other people's anger without retaliating. A patient person, a good listener, 
Because angry people and violent, loud people are usually self-righteous people who simply believe that there's nothing to hear coming out of other people's minds and hearts and lives. An elder needs to be a good listener. One pastor, Jack Miller, uh, writing to a missionary preparing to plant a church, I believe it was in Africa, just wonderful, wise words that we have from a letter that he wrote sounded something like this. So helpful. A good elder is pretty much a good listener, a patient, deliberate questioner, meaning you're asking questions of people. You'll be astonished how well things go if you are just a gentle, kind learner. My own conviction is that the flesh is so strong in the Christian leader that each of us needs a healthy fear of our own capacity for ruining the work of God with our unconscious pride. Indeed, a pastor or an elder really needs to be broken before God every day or he will break up the church of God with his willfulness. Listen and listen and gentle and gentle yourselves. And then listen and gentle yourself some more. An elder is gentle. An elder, lastly, must also, Paul tells us, have a good reputation with outsiders. I love this one because it's so unexpected. Paul doesn't say all that matters are that people in-house think you're all right. Because too often, communities can become so insular and so redefine the standards of leadership that people within might think highly of their leaders and yet outside they think you're a weirdo. That's what happens with cults, right? Everyone on the inside says, what a great leader. Everyone on the outside says, send him to jail, right? Paul says it matters what people outside the church and people outside the faith think of an elder. What about that? And this is how we know that Paul isn't just talking about stuffy morality with all these different character qualities, you know, the kind of morality that just breeds self-righteousness, I'm better than you. He's saying, look, elders need to be the kind of people where people outside the church aren't turned off by you. They may not agree with everything that you believe, and they may disagree with a whole lot, in fact, but they somehow find you winsome and spiritually attractive and respectable. You have good relationships with neighbors, that you're well regarded even by people who can't believe that you dare to believe what you believe. It matters what other people think outside the church as well of potential leaders. All of this, dear friends, every one of these attributes collectively and especially getting to that thing about the attractiveness of this kind of character, not only to people outside the church, but also inside the church. None of this is possible, friends, unless the source of all this character is the grace of God. That the power of it, that the engine that refreshes this character, that produces it, 
is not simply your own willpower or your self-discipline to get you to conform more and more to these qualities and attributes, but it's a vibrant experience of the chief shepherd who has shepherded you well. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, where he says, look, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs or wells up or comes from is great. What is it? Well, we want to say you appeared in your self-discipline, vindicated by your self-improvement and willpower, right? That's normally how we imagine that character change and growth happens. Paul says no. The mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He, meaning Jesus, appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit. This is talking about Jesus' resurrection was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Paul is pointing us to the story of the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because isn't it true that you will never be a humble leader, whether in leadership or just in life, unless you have seen that Jesus laid down his mantle of authority, did not puff himself up like he had every right to, but humbled himself to the point of death for you. And if it's starting to impact your life and change your life, doesn't it start to break in with a little bit of humility coming out of your mouth and your hands and your life into the lives of other people? That it's in the story of the gospel that you experience the great faithfulness of God who upon looking at your ugliness and your flaws does not run the other way but hangs in there, does not break a single promise and says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And if you're hearing that, do you not become more faithful not only to your spouse and to your roommates and to your friends but also to the flock of God if you're called as an elder? And if you see the admirable, even mysterious way in which Jesus was able to exercise self-control, not grasping after things that he didn't have, but really denying himself even to the point of death for you, that upon experiencing that, doesn't that start to seep into your life? Being able to love with restraint caring for people with self-control and oh, the hospitality of God who loved not just you as a stranger, but an enemy. That if you know that He loved you that way, doesn't your heart fill up with a little bit more power to love and to inconvenience yourself and to invite people in? In this great Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep who was gentle, who continues to be gentle with you in your flaws, Patient, kind, meek. Friends, do you see it? The source, the wellspring, the power of this character comes from a deep, rich communion with the shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, the King of grace. And this is what an elder needs. Not just outward character, not just conformity to these different things as if they were just rules and standards, but something that is more like fruit 
that arises out of a deep drawing from the roots of our faith, from the life of Jesus, expressing itself in an attractive life that Paul is describing here. Character. Character. It's surprising. It's surprising how much attention he gives to this. But we need to keep that in mind and pray over this and let our lives be shaped by this. Lastly and quickly, lastly and quickly, Paul says, look for not only a sense of calling, not only character, but yes, competence. Competence. Gifts do matter. Abilities do matter. They're not the most important thing, but they're not nothing. And Paul points out two abilities that he says are necessary for this role. Number one, the ability to lead. To lead as a servant. Notice that Paul doesn't say, okay, let's discern whether this person has leadership qualities and gifts and abilities, so go and shadow him at his workplace or look at his personal, professional resume. No, he doesn't say that. He says, look, consider how he's done as a dad. Titus 1.6, Timothy 3.6, he must manage his own family well, that his children should believe, his children obey him, he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Paul is not talking about these candidates needing to be perfect fathers, perfect husbands, or that their homes are devoid of any kind of flaws or failures. But men are called to be shepherds of their own families. And in looking for shepherds of the church, Paul says, you're looking for proven leadership in the home. Of course, if they're married, but in home life with roommates and family members if the candidate is not married. And here's the principle. Leading a church community is more like managing a family than like managing a business or government. Do we think of church leadership in that way? It's more like managing a family with all the glorious complexities of that. The initiative that it requires, influence, care, gentleness, the character we were just talking about, skills in persuasion, getting people into a car, the greatest challenge of a dad. (laughs) On time, even greater. Spiritual nurture. Actually winning over the followership of people. This is found in this idea of doing so in a manner worthy of full respect. Winning the respect of even the little ones that you are leading. That's a leadership skill. That can be developed and learned, but does need to be a gift. An ability to lead, a proven ability to shepherd. Seen in the home, seen outside the church, now also in the church. And secondly, the ability to instruct. Titus 1.9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Timothy, Paul talks about the ability to teach. And of course, here what's in mind is not just a person that can stand up necessarily and teach in front of a large group of people or teach a class because instruction in faith comes through a lot of different ways, doesn't it? Most often it happens more through normal life and conversations over coffee 
or maybe walking through an aisle of Home Depot or Target. Life on life, walking with people, communicating, yes, verbally, but also through manner of life, the realities or the promises of God, of persuading other people that these things are true and worth banking your life on, that Jesus is beautiful and lovely and mighty and dependable. A person that knows how to call people, not just to himself, but through him to the Lord Jesus. So the apostle is talking about a candidate that has, in fact, applied himself for some years to reading and studying and pondering and praying over the reality of the gospel that also then has the verbal ability to communicate the gospel and make it relevant to people's lives. There are a lot of creative ways and a lot of different personalities through which this can happen. Again, it doesn't just mean teaching in the way that maybe I might be doing right now. It can look very different in different elders. But Paul does say this is a key function and a key ability that needs to be present. Competence, gifts, abilities, it does matter. But you can understand that you can have all the gifts in the world and terrible character. You might be able to teach, but if you're full of pride, you're going to crush the people you're trying to teach. You might walk alongside a person and share your life with them, but if you're self-righteous, you're going to hide your true self and never communicate to people that God comes to the weak and lowly, which is what we need to hear and what an elder needs to communicate. So even in these abilities, can you see how critical this idea of character is? The character of Jesus becoming more like Him and being changed by Him. Being so compelled by Him that you feel called that you feel it as a strange joy to want to sign up to lay down your life for the flock, to serve, even at cost to yourself, to give up yourself, to be a shepherd, to be an elder. It's what we're looking for here in this church. It might happen very soon. It might take some time. We're going to wait on God, pray together, discern, and watch and see what He does for our elders, for our leadership, but also in all of your lives. Are you growing as leaders? Are you growing as influencers? Is it sort of starting to look like this vision of leadership? Or do you long for that as well as you pray for those that lead you? God says, long for it. Pray for it. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. You're the leader of all leaders. Uh, We just can't even believe the kind of shepherd that you were the way in which you used your power and authority to love, the way you put people first, the way your humility, your gentleness, your kindness uh, was so winsome and so perplexing at the same time. We want to be like you. And we want that especially of those that will be shepherds in the church, elders, as well as other kinds of leaders that you raise up here at Grace Meridian Hill. So we pray your blessing upon these truths and this vision upon our lives. Help us to embrace it, to embrace you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.